Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker this evening received a Master of Arts degree from the University of Dallas and his licentiate and doctorate degrees in sacred theology from the Pontifical Lateran University in Rome. In 1977, Dr. William Marshner became a founding faculty member at Christendom College and served continuously as professor of theology until his retirement from teaching in 2015. He currently serves as a scholar in residence at Christendom. A well-known author and Protestant convert to the Catholic Church, Dr. William Marshner has lectured widely on topics ranging from Islam to the heresy of modernism. Dr. Marshner is a regular presenter at the Institute of Catholic Culture and we're always delighted to welcome him. Dr. Marshner, the show's yours. Welcome back, Dr. Marshner. Well, thank you all very much. Am I, can you all hear? Yeah, you're good to go. Very good. <clears throat> I'm gonna begin with a prayer and then follow us on the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour and Amen. Seat of wisdom. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Modernism is the term we use to designate the religious crisis that marked the beginning of the 20th century and in the Catholic Church provoked the principal acts of Pope St. Pius X. From a speculative point of view, modernism presented itself as a curious, complicated mishmash, and it was a collection of errors. The papal documents were able to draw up, finally, a synthesis of its various tendencies and uh, defined their contours. The exposition of the modernist errors is something that we will get to, God willing, next week. I wanna take you bit by bit through that wonderful document called Lamentabili, which means sorry, as in sorry outcome. The Sorry Outcome of Modernism is the name of the list of errors put out by Pope St. Pius X. To get to that point, we need to talk about a little bit of history. We talk about the movement of ideas in which modernism was concretely expressed. We want to talk about some facts which preceded and accompanied and followed the church's timely or once timely intervention. I'm going to define modernism. I'm going to talk about its background. I'm going to talk about its apparition in history. I'm going to talk about its condemnation by the church. 
And if we have time, we probably won't, but if we have time, I'll talk a little bit about its dissolution as a movement by 1915 or so. But then there was a sort of a reinvention of aspects of it in France in the 1930s under the interesting rubric, La Nouvelle Theologie, New <laughs> Theology. Yeah. Now, the word modernism is like the word liberalism in that it's one of those hazy words that don't carry a precise notion and can elicit a favorable or a hostile reaction. So to avoid ambiguities, our first task and our first difficulty is to try to define it. Etymologically, that means in the history of the word, quote, modernism, unquote, doesn't evoke any concept except the tendency to draw one's inspiration from the up-to-date. Well, I suppose that implies a certain predilection for the new, but um, not every form of that state of mind is worthy of the church's attention, much less condemnation. I, myself, I'm a big anti-collector. So in that respect, I have no modernist tendencies. But when it comes to my refrigerator, I like the up-to-date. Ditto for my other kitchen appliances and especially under pressure from my wife, for whom these are labor-saving contraptions. There's nothing wrong with, that, with liking modern technology. That's not what we're talking about here. And we have to be very careful when we talk about the, the modernist movement in history because it had critics and defenders who just would not use the terminology in any precise way. There were conservatives back at the beginning of the 20th century who said, modernist, modernist, about anything they didn't like. And there were equally leftists in the church in those days who screamed, reactionary, reactionary, against everything they didn't like. And so, um, and of course, they thought that the church's attempt to close the issue was premature and presumptuous and damaging because it hurt those who couldn't bear to have their modern aspirations crushed. And, 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 and there was violence done to the people who were sometimes alleged to be the church's best defenders. <laughs> so it was a word much thrown around, just like the word liberalism today. But if we go to the church herself to look for what goes into defining modernism, we go to a safe source. What did she exactly wish to condemn? The traits clearly observe, emerge in the papal acts. Number one, I've already mentioned, lamentably, the complete list of modernist errors. 
Number two, Pascendi, the encyclical, which Pope Pius X put out a couple of years later, sort of systematizing all the tendencies and thoughts that went into the movement. And um, uh, we'll probably have to summarize that. As the name itself, modernism indicates, it was a time-bound thing. The thoroughgoing and systematized features of modernism's real origin, its antecedents, its status as a recent and localized phenomenon is what we can't forget. Modernism is inseparable in every respect from the religious situation in which the church found herself at the end of the 19th century, and particularly under the pontificate of Pius X. Modernism is inseparable in every respect from that religious situation in which the church found herself at the end of the 19th century. Well, you're going to ask me, well, what was that situation? And more than that, you're going to ask me, wait a minute, Marshner, you can't put this thing into a nutshell that way. We've got modernists running around today, don't we? Or close enough. And it's not the end of the 19th century anymore. So where does people come from? <coughs> I have to tell you a story about um, the man who invented media studies. You know who I'm talking about? Wrote the Gutenberg Galaxy. Anyway, his name was Marshall McLuhan. He was once invited to give a speech at a very liberal Catholic seminary up near the University of Toronto where he taught. They wanted him to come over and listen to all of their up-to-date and modern ideas. They were sure they would get his approval. McLuhan listened to their stuff and said this is nothing but a rehash of 19th century ideas there it is the hot ideas that we find on the American left and in the left of the church are all 19th century ideas. They began in the eight, they were flourishing in the 1890s and they have come back to haunt us because certain aspects of Vatican II, I'm sorry to say, did not update the church, but backdated its theology. Okay? Instead of following Aquinas and rigorous philosophical thought, we were invited to follow uh, Hegel, Kant, even Marx, every one of them a 19th century thinker. So beware of thinking that I'm putting modernism into a box when I say it grew out of the situation at the end of the 19th century. Okay.
the when the blow fell and modernism was condemned by the Pope, as you might expect, there was a chorus of voices saying, oh, that's baloney. These are great scholars. They're not heretics. They, they never said that. <laughs> the Pope is once again misled, fanatic, uh, never mind. Well, to give the lie to all of that sort of propaganda, no one less than um, Alfred Loisy himself, L-O-I-S-Y, not Loisy, it's Loisy, Alfred Loisy, the foremost French modernist, biblical scholar, and all around had in some respects. Nevertheless, Loisy said from the very beginning, this encyclical hits me. And he pointed out passages in his own books on which the Pope had drawn to make the condemnation. So the attempt to say, no, 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 it ain't us, didn't succeed that time. Thanks to the simple honesty of Lavoisier. And similarly, George Tyrrell, the main English modernist, a, an Irish Jesuit, admitted that many of the condemned ideas were in his works. So the principle guys admitted that what the church was condemning was their their, their bit, their, their shtick. Modernism must be sought in the movement of religious criticism, of which Loisie in France and Tyrrell in England were by their own avowal the major exponents. Okay? Now, besides this connection to people writing at the end of the 19th century, first decade of the 20th century, and admitting, yeah, this is our, these are our ideas, we also have to look for a psychological element in modernism. I've talked about its historical place, but there's also a psychological element there. Pashendi, um, the great encyclical, says twice, that the modernists passed themselves off as ecclesiae reformatores. That's Latin for renewers of the church. Okay, renewers of the church. And they uh, claimed that um, their renewal was intended to better adapt the church to modern conditions of thought and action. Well, no program was ever more openly proclaimed, and few have sounded more innocent than that. Who doesn't want to help the church cope better in her thought and action with modern conditions? <laughs> so it sounded like an appropriate goal even a necessary one. 
That explains why it was so seductive. You had to get into the details of exactly what the modernists were denying before you could see what was wrong with its reformist program. Now, since it was a reformist program, right off the bat, we know that it contains a negative element. When you're not going to be uh, an engaged reformer unless something has got your bile up, something about the current state of the church must uh, disturb you deeply. And that's why you want to reform things. And Loisie tells us that what united all of them was, quote, the need for a reform of Catholic teaching. Yes, teaching was bad. It's interesting. The modernists were not like so many of the liberal Catholics that some of us grew up knowing in the 60s and 70s. Those uh, liberal Catholics were mainly concerned with practical matters. The liturgy, for example. Oh, it's so boring. It's in Latin. Nobody understands it. Lozzi loved the Latin mass. One of the few times he left, he wept after leaving the church was when he was in front of a church and you could hear the Latin mass being said way in the background and he wept because he couldn't say it anymore. He loved the Latin mass. Unlike certain people you and I can name. And very few of the modernists were interested in getting rid of the celibacy of the clergy. There were a couple, mostly in Italy, of course. I don't know why I say, of course. <laughs> the French modernists were not interested in that at all. Not at all. And Tyrrell certainly wasn't interested. Tyrrell had this live-in secretary, a woman named Maud Petrie. And there has never been the slightest suggestion that there was any hanky-panky between Father Tyrrell and dear Maud. They were not interested in challenging clerical celibacy. And they weren't much interested in stuff like, oh, we should change the way bishops are picked. They should be elected from the people of the... Oh, gee. No. The original modernists were just not interested in that practical stuff. And since they weren't challenging that stuff, they had an easier way to say, look, our movement is within the church and for her benefit. Now, when have we heard heretics say that before? Okay. Everyone who's invented a heresy has said, this is for the benefit of the church. This will put her on the map. Uh -huh. But usually the heretics left after the church said, no, sorry, not interested. Two classes of heretics did not. One were the Jansenists. They wouldn't leave. And the other was the modernists. In my humble experience, 
the attitude of the modernists as of today's liberal Catholics was like the protesting youth in the days of the Vietnam War. What did they all say? Hell no, we won't go. Condemn, any, condemn us a hundred times, we won't go. Nobody here but us good Catholics. So they were determined to stay in. And this aspect of their rhetoric particularly piqued and delighted a Protestant journalist. He was a French Protestant journalist. His name was Paul Sabatier and wrote in the newspapers all the time. And he loved the modernists. Haven't we had a problem of recent liberal theologians in the Catholic Church beloved by journalists? Eh. Yes. Well, Paul Sabatier loved the modernists and he called them a Catholic renaissance. <laughs> Not a ruin, but a renaissance. So, it was supposed to be an effort by Catholics to rejuvenate the church and so regenerate her. Okay? But now, I've given you a historical element. I've given you a psychological element. Now I've got to get to the most important element, the doctrinal element. There's a very particular way these guys went about applying their reformist hopes. They presented an ensemble of positions that was firm enough to show the main lines of a system. And it was characterized first, as I just said, by its distinctly speculative cast. It wasn't about administrative reforms. It wasn't about, it wasn't even about moral reform, like celibacy of the clergy or something like that, much less about, oh dear, let's weaken those horrible rules against sexual freedom or whatever. The modernists had no interest in that at all at the turn of the century. No. They left the church's moral teaching alone. They left her social teaching alone for the most part, except that they all had a big liking for modern democracy. So if you were a monarchist, the uh, modernists were probably on the other side. But they had little new to say on politics. They dealt mainly with dogmatic principles. What they were going to, quote, modernize, unquote, was the conception and structure of the faith itself. Okay. Um, if you read... Um, if you are so advised as to actually read that, that, that book of mine, which was advertised at the beginning, Defending the Faith, an Anti-Modernist Anthology, you'll find what I have done is collect together the main writings of the guys who were smart right there at the turn of the 20th century and spotted what the modernists were up to and analyzed their stuff down to the bottom. And they pointed out the radical nature of what they were up to. 
Here is a short definition by Pius X himself. He called modernism the rendezvous of all the heresies. <laughs> okay, canal, corral. It was a rendezvous of all the heresies. Now, I will say in a minute why that was. A better definition, well, a more exact definition, was given by the Jesuit father, Léonce de Grand Maison. Father Léonce de Grand Maison, great man. Uh, his name means big house, Grand Maison, Father Léonce. Uh, his definition went like this. He is a modernist who holds the two convictions that, number one, on definite points affecting the doctrinal foundations of the Christian religion, there can be a real conflict between the traditional view and the modern one. And that number two, in such cases of conflict, it's the traditional view that has to yield, has to be adapted to the modern one. It's got to be touched up, if necessary, changed radically or abandoned. Okay, now then, it had repercussions on every aspect of Catholic doctrine, from the mystery of the Trinity, to the sacraments, to grace, to ecclesiology, it touched on everything, rendezvous of all the heresies, as the Pope said, but how did it manage to affect them all? Answer, by overthrowing the notions which are the foundation of dogma. I'm going to talk about those notions in a moment. But modernism, you have to know, boasted of putting the axe uh, to the branch, not to the twig, but to the root of the tree. The faith in its deepest fibers. Their main errors had to do with how we attain God, the value of the knowledge we can obtain of God. It had to do with the concepts of revelation, faith, and dogma. I want to pause there for a moment so that I can hold up a nice piece of paper that I used to hand out to my students. It's called Revelation, Faith, and Dogma. And if you're taking notes, please make three columns. One column for Revelation, the middle column for Faith, and the last column for Dogma. These three terms, Revelation, Faith, Dogma, relate to each other in the following way. Faith is one's response to Revelation. And dogma is the correct articulation of this response. So, if you shift the definition of any one of these terms, you force a shift in the definition of the other two. Let's see some examples of how this worked out. Let me start with the Catholic tradition. Revelation, in that column, is God speaking. Then, go over to the faith column. 
Faith is hearing him with assent. And then third, dogma is the articulation of what one has heard God say. Okay? God speaks. We hear with assent. Then we try to articulate what we've heard God say. There's dogma. Does everybody see how that works? Neat and clean. But suppose instead of following the tradition, we follow Hegel. Hegel introduced a version of Christianity in which revelation is not God speaking. No, 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 that's dull. That's ear stuff. Modern man demands the eye. Visual, so modern, uh, for Hegel, revelation is the indescribable God uh, showing himself. Hmm. So then faith is seeing him. I see God in this. I see him in that. Yes. And then dogma, get this, is the human description of the indescribable. (laughs) God gives us a flash of himself. He's indescribable. We try to articulate what we've seen, and we try to describe the indescribable. Nice. Oh, how about somebody more modern like Karl Barth, the great pioneer of Protestant neo-orthodoxy, as he called it. He defines revelation as God at once disclosing and concealing himself in symbols. So then faith is it catching the symbols. You catch that, you get the symbol. And dogma is human interpretation of the symbols. Which means dogmas are not about God, but they're about the alleged symbols of God. Oh, dear. Thank you, Bart. Wait a minute. I know another view, which has been big in recent decades. Revelation is God, not speaking, that's dull. Revelation is God acting in historical events. God acts. That's wonderful. So then faith has to be seeing the events as divinely managed. Mm -hmm. I have to see God acting there. And then dogma is human interpretation of the historical events, which makes dogmas very fallible and very changeable indeed. How many historical events have managed to keep the same interpretation for the last hundred years? I was wondering, finally, when Americans were going to get sick and tired of celebrating the French Revolution. It isn't over yet. But some people have gotten over it. And I do say, well, there were many Americans in this country in the 1930s who were jubilant 
about the Bolshevik Revolution. I hear the tramping of the, 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 the troops grinding out the, 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 the bin, never mind, the wine presses of iniquity, <laughs> capitalist iniquity. Thank you, Bolshevik Revolution. And then we got sick of that. Partly because of what the communists finally had to admit about themselves. 70 years of unparalleled murder. Yes. Faith is seeing the events as divinely managed. That makes faith just like reading the signs of the times. Ever hear that slogan? Big right after Vatican II, the signs of the times. We've got to read the signs to see what God is up to in our time. Yes, ah, yeah, right. Okay. Um, let me give you an example of reading the signs of the times. There used to be a whole lot more living homosexual persons in many American cities. Then came the HIV crisis. AIDS. Uh -huh. Was AIDS a sign of the times? Well, Jerry Falwell certainly thought so. This is God kicking the bottoms of those people. On the other hand, people say, oh, this is just the greatest sign of progress ever. We are getting over some of our oldest prejudices. Aren't we getting grown up and good these days? Who's reading that so-called sign of the times right? What the heck good is a sign when you can't agree how to read it? Let me... I'll give you another one. It's a few hundred years older. The Turks finally get enough cannon from the Italians to batter down the walls of Constantinople. Constantinople Falls. What year was that? 1452, something like that? 53. 53. 53. Okay. Let me ask you this. Was that a sign of God's wrath upon the Greeks for their schism? Mm -hmm. Or was it a sign of God's, well, yeah, discomforting his people because, you know, they'd been so loyal to him and now it was time to do without some of their traditional supports. I mean, was this good or bad? <laughs> well, I'm not going to answer that question because I don't believe in reading the signs of the times. And so I especially despise this idea that revelation is God acting in historical events. I'm going to give you one more definition, the relevance of which is that it comes from the chief French modernist Alfred Loisy. Here's what he said Revelation was. It is man's consciousness of his relation to God. 
consciousness of your relation to God. Well, then what is faith? Faith is feeling related to him. I feel like your son, oh God. I feel like my filial relation. I feel my filial relation. Yeah. And then what is dogma? It's an attempt to express this feeling. I feel so warm and close to God. I'm just going to try to put that into a, an intellectual formula. And needless to say, everybody does that all for himself, sort of. Uh, if you're not guided by the church and by tradition and by scripture, you just... <laughs> you know how the average American is. I'll feel close to God. I'll think I'm saved. Well, well, Baptist friend, think again. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. Anyway, this last position, Lozzi's position, had been pioneered 170 years ago in German Protestantism. The real inventor of this last position I gave you was Friedrich Schleiermacher. Nice long name there, Schleiermacher, Friedrich. And it was introduced into Catholic circles a hundred, well, Catholic circles 70 years later by Alfred Loisy. Okay. And, of course, condemned by Pius X in 1907. One is somewhat surprised to see a French intellectual borrowing German ideas. They didn't, they didn't like the Germans one little bit. It's because we wrestled Alsace-Lorraine away from them. What do you want? Our army marched in the shade all the way to Paris in 1870. They were mad. Didn't like, never mind. I'm not going to get there. So, the modernist position attacked the three fundamental notions, revelation, faith, dogma. Attack those and you knock down everything. Does everybody see? And it now becomes open season to throw your own content into what you are seeing and what you are feeling. Okay. So in place of an objective truth guaranteed by reason and faith, modernism reduced everything to subjective terms and hence hello to an open-ended unlimited evolution of formulas and ideas we used you know how we used to be in my grandparents generation we were kind of scared of God, so we conceived him as just and fearful. Nowadays, we're more relaxed. We feel that God just loves us to pieces. We don't have to worry about fear anymore. Oh, jeez. I don't need to tell you what this stuff sounds like. You all know it too well. Okay. So you put together the three elements of the definition, the historical element, the psychological element and the doctrinal element, and you get modernism. 
and I'm not going to talk about the history of the word, who first started using it. Actually, it was the Protestants who first started using the word. In the 1870s in the Netherlands, a pastor, Kuiper, attacked the liberal Protestants in his own country with the word modernist. So, our favorite word's an ecumenical word. Relax, everyone. Never mind. Now I need to say something about the background of modernism. Almost everything that happened in the 19th century or even earlier has been accused of being the cause, the source, the root of modernism. But most people won't tell you what I think is the first cause sparking modernist feelings and so on. It goes back to 1762 when a fellow you've probably heard of, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, wrote a book on education. The title he gave the book was Emile, or On Education. In that book, he, he didn't want his pupil Emile to learn definite doctrines and have to memorize dull old formula. He, was, he didn't like that stuff. But he thought Emile would profit by the attitude of a clergyman whom he called the Vicar of Savoy. The Vicar of Savoy. The creed of the Vicar of Savoy is in a meal. It's been translated. And what you find when you read it is, first of all, by Rousseau's time, a considerable moral prestige has come back to the Catholic clergy. Unlike Protestant preachers and so on, the um, the Catholic clergy still had high moral prestige. But Rousseau didn't want them transmitting the faith. He wanted them to teach a religion that was stripped to the bare essentials. A wise God, the soul, morals, and duty. Now, if I pare down religion to the wise God, morals, duty, and so on, uh, those of you who are history buffs may recognize the outlines of a position called deism. It was pioneered in England. English liberal thinkers became deists. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. Okay. Well, of course, there's a God, there's a wise God. And yes, we have souls and we have duties and morals. Good, 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 good. But the old fashioned deists had been bitterly hostile to religious symbolism. Sacraments, symbols, papist claptrap, 
churches full of pictures and images and goodness knows what all funny rituals. It's all, all terrible. Oh, simple religion. Why is God simple morals? That's what we need around here. But in Rousseau's Creed of the Savoyard Vicar, deism takes a new form. I call it sentimental. Yes. The priest who has stripped dogma down remains at his post, dispensing the ceremonies of the church with mystic, sentimental devotion. So, what we get implicitly is a new ecclesiology, a new account of what the church is for. The church does not exist to teach a revealed truth. No, 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 but to nourish the religious and moral impulses of the people. And thus to better them. The church is about making a better world by bringing people into more integrity and harmony with themselves and whatnot. And the funny thing is, Rousseau's book in 1762 was an instant bestseller. And its most popular part was the creed of the Vicar of Savoy. That shows that there was suddenly a new consensus, even in France before the Revolution. The old line, French revolutionaries were bitterly against God. They grabbed, you know, they grabbed Notre Dame Cathedral and turned it into the Temple of Reason. (laughs) They didn't like mystic, sentimental devotion one little bit. But Rousseau's new idea would give French radicals a different idea of how to behave. Don't deny the faith. No, no, no. Just understand it more benignly. Hmm? Do you think we ought to take a break? He does. Well, I think so, too. So I'll see you back here in, uh, what, 10 minutes? 15? Yeah, that's fine, yeah. We'll, we'll take a 10-minute break, and then we'll return. Very good. I'm uh, going to cut short my discussion of the background of modernism. I've already mentioned Rousseau and his nasty book about education. There was another source of disorder in the thought of Western minds throughout the 19th century. And that disorder can be summed up by the word critique and then by the adjective that goes with it, critical. On the one hand, there was critique and critical stuff in philosophy. And the big... Um, source of thinking here was Immanuel Kant, K-A-N-T, Immanuel Kant. 
he wrote a famous book called The Critique of Pure Reason. It's very badly written and very dense and very deep, and hardly anybody could read it, but it was another bestseller. Why was that? Strange. I think it's the worst written bestseller of all time. If you ever try to read it, you'll see what I mean. But anyway, in the critique of pure reason, Kant shattered most people's confidence in the value of reason and the principles of reason. According to him, in his critique of pure reason, your human mind is incapable of knowing metaphysical realities by reasoning. All you can know is empirical stuff. What's what it looks like, what it smells like, what it feels like, and so on. So there can be no speculative philosophical knowledge of God. There can't be such a thing. Is God an empirical thing? No. He's a metaphysically defined being. But Kant said you can't reach any knowledge by such concepts. So you can't know about God's existence. Ditto for the human soul. That's not an empirical thing either, is it? So God and the soul are both unknowable. Now watch out. Did Kant say they didn't exist? No. He said they're there, but you can't get at them by your mind. Okay. So uh, you can't get at them by your mind. Never mind how you can get at them. I'll get to that in a minute. You can't get at them by your mind. So religious reasoning, all of traditional theology felt the blow of Kant's thought severely. At the same time, uh, well, no, I've got the same time. For Kant, there was a kind of back door to the knowledge of God. But it was through your attempts to follow your conscience, to be morally good, right? Um, that aspect of Kant's thought soon came under criticism. But here's an idea that really lived on. You want to know reality? Close your eyes and reach out with your feelings, Luke. Huh? Reach out with your feelings. You will encounter the transcendent. But mentally, you can't grab it. Now, the other use of the talk of criticism and critique in the 19th century was devoted to historical stuff. The 19th century was the great century of history writing. Okay. The great histories that we cherish to this day were either written or started at least in the 19th century. Well, with one exception. Um, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. That was 18th century. But um, 
for the most part, history writing was the gem of the 19th century. And all the historians of that time were convinced that they could get to the underlying facts better than anybody previously could. Okay. So never mind what what these what the tradition is. Uh, examine things uh, in by the light of your own historical thinking, and that will take you where you need to go. So criticism in philosophy and in history was an important aspect of modern thought in the 19th century, okay? Remember, they had just as much right to the word modern as we do. For them, it was the modern stuff. And the Catholic Church was not in a good position to respond to this stuff. Why? Because of A, the French Revolution, and B, Napoleon. That guy had impoverished the church. Look, didn't we have a great Catholic university in Paris? Didn't St. Thomas Aquinas teach there? Didn't Dun Scotus? Yes, they all taught there, but it was closed by the revolution. And by Napoleon, it was replaced with a secular university. Yes. Catholic seminaries were closed all over Europe. You wanted to get an education in the faith? <laughs> you couldn't find it anywhere. And so Catholic apologetics would need to be reinvented once our ability to do philosophical and historical scholarship was restored. Okay. Now, the modernists themselves liked to lay claim to the kind of critique that dealt with history. Okay. We are the masters of the facts. We study the ancient texts. We study the monuments, the potsherds of the ancient world, whatever. We get at what the text originally meant. And uh, too bad if the church doesn't agree. Um, <clears throat> so they laid claim to historical criticism and used it as a bludgeon against the Holy See. However, they also uh, couldn't resist trying to reconstruct a new narrative against what their critique had knocked down, in place of what their critique had knocked down. And so they began writing their own versions of ancient church history, the life of Christ. You've heard perhaps of these famous unbelieving books on the life of Christ. Uh, we've had that Jesus seminar. Uh, in our own lifetime, very meh, stuff, you know, every, practically every word Jesus ever said is inauthentic, of course. 
And they, uh, but that kind of criticism goes all the way back into the 19th century. Okay. So, um, the rational basis for historical conviction about the supernatural origins of the Christian faith were system being swept systematically away. And that was true in the Protestant world as much as it was true in the Catholic world, even more so. I mentioned before the liberal Protestantism on the German side of the Rhine. I gave you the unpronounceable and unspellable name of Friedrich Schleiermacher. How would you like another one? Adolf Ritschel. Get this. R-I-T-S-C-H-L. Ritschel. That's five consonants right in a row. Don't you love it? Uh, Ritchell and uh, the other uh, founders of uh, liberal Protestantism. Now, the church began to fight back um, during the time of rebuilding under Pope Pius IX. Okay. Of course, things were even better under Leo XIII, but the reconstruction of Catholic institutions started under Pope Pius IX. And uh, that's when our um, Catholic institutes of higher learning were established. We didn't have the University of Paris anymore. It was now called the Sorbonne, and Catholics weren't invited. So we opened up an Institut Catholique in Paris. Catholic Institute in Paris. And we made the rector of it a man with important political connections, whose name I will get to in a moment. But there were also Catholic Institutes opened up in Lyon in the, uh, and further south in France, in Toulouse. And the works of scholarship that we uh, do think of as flowing out of Catholic sources in the 19th century were from these places. Um, the Bulletin Critique, the Revue, the Revue Biblique was started by a French um, Dominican in Jerusalem. And that became the center of our biblical scholarship. And there were other such works all over the place. And um, there was a wonderful guy down in Toulouse named Pierre Batifol, B-A-T-T-I-F-O-L, Batifol. I spelled his name because I want you to remember him. This guy was great. He started an institute there, Catholic Institute, Higher Learning, and so on and so on, and started putting out a periodical called the Bulletin um, uh, de Littérature Ecclesiastique, Bulletin of Ecclesiastical Literature, in which he went after the modernist hammer and tongs 
beginning in 1901 or thereabouts. He really was after those guys. Um, the liberal Catholics in France or the modernist inclined Catholics also had their journals and their institutes. And um, I'm not going to bother telling you their names, but you do need to know about one called the French Clergy Review. Okay. Revue du Clergé Francais was not for scholars, it was for priests. Okay. And it turned bad. It was giving favorable attention to Loisie and his pals for years before uh, it finally got the message, hey, these guys don't believe. <laughs> okay, what do I want to get to next? I'm not going to mention Christian democratism. It was a powerful movement at the time, especially in Italy. Uh, so you get a certain mixture of liberal politics into, or you know, left-wing politics, into the modernist uh, interests through these Christian Democrats. Um, there's no point about talking, talking about the background of modernism in England because the Catholic writing in England, except for Cardinal Newman, was negligible. Of course, the modernists tried to harness Newman to their chariot, but they didn't succeed. Newman's thought was too well known in Rome as well as in England. Um, there was a rip-roaring Christian Democrat named Father Muri, Romolo Muri, down in Italy. Oh, what a man! He would he just, you know, you 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 meet this, you met in our own lifetimes this sort of priest who's usually on television leading a parade or a riot. Yes. Uh, well, he was one of those. And uh, started magazines and so on. Never mind the situation in Germany. That wasn't very interesting. And for those of you who have trouble spelling German words, I'm going to skip it all. But I have to talk about some agents of liaison and propaganda. Among the countries of France, England, Italy, Germany, communication sprang up, not only as a result of books and daily newspapers, but because certain people went out of their way to put like-minded people in contact with each other. This is the social side of modernism. These days, of course, I'm sure it's done on uh, YouTube or whatever, but uh, tweets and so on. But the foremost Catholic agent of liaison was Baron Freddy von Hugel. 
V-O-N, capital H-U-G-E-L with an umlaut over the U. So it's Von Hegel. His real name was Friedrich, but I call him Freddie because uh, despite his German last name, he was almost completely English. He was raised in England. His mother uh, was Scottish, but he was a baron. His title was worthless. It was an old Holy Roman Empire title, not a modern German title. So his barony wasn't worth two bits, but it gave him a credential of nobility. And why did that matter? Because one of the most important and richest Catholics in England was Lady Arundel. She became a Catholic. Yes, and so did her daughter. Then her daughter needed a husband. Now, if you are in the Arundel family, in 19th century England, you do not marry an engineer or a parlor. No, you need somebody with your own social standing. Well, unfortunately, I mean, the Duke of Norfolk was already taken. So you couldn't find too many Catholic noblemen, but thank God for Freddie. Freddie von Hugel was eligible and Lady Arundel was able to marry off her daughter. And with her daughter came a really nice dowry, which gave Freddie traveling money. He could go across the Channel to France anytime he wanted, visit Germany anytime he wanted. And he was multilingual. So he, oh, boy. And he used his money well. For example, there was this little funny-looking Jesuit in Ireland named George Tyrrell. Who put little George Tyrrell in connection with big guys like Alfred Loisie? Freddie von Hugel did it. Mm -hmm. And he also convinced Tyrrell to take a more radical line in his own writings. So Freddie was uh, kind of everywhere. He met people all over the place and he had uh, intellectual conversations with everybody, did a little bit of scholarship of his own, but mainly he was moneyed enough to travel and be the ambassador of one modernism to another, modernist to another. He got down to Italy, met the Italian modernists. Yes, there were Italian modernists. I'm not going to give you their names, except well, I'll give you one name later. But you have to know that von Hugel with his deep pockets was like the, the funding mechanism for poor as church mice, liberal biblical scholars in various little teaching jobs in France and Germany. There was a similar guy on the Protestant side, but he, he, he was a traveler, he wasn't rich, he was just a newspaper writer. I mentioned his name before, he was Paul Sabatier. 
And he wrote in, you know, so many journals about this great Catholic renaissance that was going on that for fun, his friends gave him the nickname, the Pope of Modernism, Paul Sabatier. Okay. Now I want to start start talking about the first emergence in history of something like the modernist crisis or an immediate prelude to it. In eighteen ninety three, an encyclical came out from Leo the Thirteenth called Providentissimus Deus. It was an important reassertion of the church's belief in the inerrancy of Holy Scripture. Yes? People don't know that that encyclical was a response to an article published in France. Okay? by the very man that the church had made the rector of her institute in Paris, the most important of her new centers of higher learning. He has uh, a difficult to pronounce name. Maurice Dulst, D apostrophe, capital H-U-L-S-T, Dulst, okay? Good political connections, even some aristocratic background. But he was responsible for hiring a young biblical scholar to come and teach at the Institut in Paris. And that young scholar's name was Alfred Loisie. And it took a couple of years, but Loisie's lectures finally began to eh, bother people. And... um, Dulst defended him and um, wrote an article in praise of a, of a uh, half-baked position that Loisy had put forward on biblical inerrancy. And Leo XIII read it and, oops, no thank you. You know, there are various countries where you can write articles and Rome doesn't notice them. United States in those days, eh. Holland, eh. Norway, come on. But in France, if you published an article that threatened Catholic doctrine, the Vatican's ears went up promptly. And Leo XIII had wonderful ears indeed. I haven't had time to tell you, and I'm not going to have time, to tell you all about the two main philosophical movements in the 19th century. There's more unity to that century than most people realize. There were two and only two main schools of philosophy. The idealists and the positivists, they were both bad. Leo XIII understood that well enough that in 1879, he did an unprecedented act in the history of the church. He condemned the intellectual resources of his own century. We're not going to try to defend the faith with this stuff. 
We're going to go back to the real stuff in the 13th century, okay? In my opinion, throughout the 19th century and well into the 1960s, there was not a philosophical tradition in the Western world to which the church could turn for the articulation and defense of her doctrines. It was junk from the word go until the 60s when some wonderful things happened, which I'm not going to tell you about. Okay. I'm going to talk next about a guy who launched the history of modernism as a philosophical position. That was his interest. He was sort of an amateur philosopher. And he was a high school teacher. His name was Marcel Hebert. H-E-B-E-R-T with the acute accent on the first E. Hebert was his name, Marcel. And he taught religion and things in a very rich, elite French prep school called the Ecole Fenelon. He had as his pupils important, really important guys in the next generation. They wrote novels and, you know, became public leaders of various sorts. So he was an influential high school teacher because he, you know, he, he wasn't teaching John Q. Average. I mean, he was, he was teaching the movers and shakers of the next generation. Okay. So he had an honorable and outstanding position in the Paris clergy, did Father uh, Marcel Hébert. And he was inclined to philosophical speculation. And unfortunately, Kant's book, The Critique of Pure Reason, robbed him of his faith in the traditional notions of doctrine and theology. And so, he gradually even lost faith in a personal God. And that was the cornerstone of religion for him. Now, he was determined nevertheless not to renounce everything. Because like so many people in that late 19th century atmosphere, he just loved the mystical atmosphere of the church, the beautiful ceremonies, gee whiz, the incense and the spiritual writings and all that stuff. He liked it. And so he decided that religion should be understood to be a texture of symbols. Okay. His position was called symbolism. And um, I'm going to amuse you, I hope, 
by reading you his creedal statement. This is the creed of Marcel Hébert. What's the first article of the creed? I believe in God, the Father, the Almighty. Get this. I believe in the objective value of the idea of God. (laughs) The idea of an absolute, perfect, distinct, but not separated from the world being. He draws the world and directs it towards heaven. Towards what? He draws the whole world towards what is best. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The magnet of progress. How about that? He is the principle of all physical and moral phenomena. He's the raison d'etre of human reason and conscience. Well, he's one in threefold because he can be called <coughs> infinite activity, intelligence, and love. Yes. So much for God. We're just in love with the idea of God, yes? Article two of the creed. What's article two about? And in one, Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God, yeah. Yeah, so it's the article about our Lord. Okay, so what else does the symbolist believe? Get this. I believe in him in whom has been realized to an exceptional and unique degree the union of the divine with human nature, who was aware of this intimate union and expressed it by his words and deeds, and so became our master and model, Jesus Christ. Dash. Our master, Jesus Christ, whose dazzling superiority so impressed the hearts of the simple uh that it was for them symbolized by a supernatural conception in the womb of a creature combining the two ideal glories of woman, maternity, and virginity. So Our Lady is the symbol, too, of the combination. Okay, dash, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and buried, dash, whose powerful action after death, persisting in this world in men's consciousness, determined in the minds of the apostles and disciples the visions and apparitions recorded in the Gospels and has been symbolized by the myth of a liberating descent into hell and an ascension towards uh, the higher regions of heaven represented in the naive imaginations of the first believers as a glorious abode situated above the clouds where Jesus has gone up to sit at the right hand of the Father once he will come to judge the living and the dead. How much is left? of the real second article of the book. He was crucified under Pilate, died and was buried. Yeah, that's about it. Everything else is 
wonderful symbolisms woven about him by the simple because he was so dazzlingly superior because he had such a deep and ginchy gasp grasp of the union of the divine and the human okay are you all ready for the third article of his creed guess who it's about <laughs> the holy spirit huh yes and i believe in the spirit of love huh? who vivifies our souls draws and impels us towards all that is true beautiful and good divine flame of charity who alone can destroy the egotism of this world divine flame of love oh what a great spirit that is never mind holy spirit he's the spirit of love and he's not the spirit of the father he's the spirit of something we all deeply treasure the spirit of love next i believe in the holy universal church hey now that sounds good <laughs> comma the visible expression of the ideal communion between all beings visible expression of the ideal union between all beings between man and trees and flowers and nature and the stars and the planets and it does the union everything with everything else <laughs> what binds everything together with everything else love jeez that idea goes back to empedocles in the fifth century bc it's unbelievable that's supposed to be the holy spirit Oh, I'm sorry, that's supposed to be the church. <laughs> the church is the visible expression of the unity. Now get this, which must gradually be realized by justice and charity. Uh -huh. In other words, as we make political progress and create a more just and more human society the church just shows herself in the world remember there's also another living communion of man with man and man with woman and it's called the state hello we're all just citizens together because it's all just one great big union of stuff with stuff can be realized even better by justice and charity okay next i believe in the remission of sins for every soul that is penitent and have good and of good will oh, okay. now how about the life everlasting okay. get this i believe in the survival of what constitutes our moral personality 
in the I believe in the eternal life that already exists in every soul who is living a life above the physical level. Okay. So if you think from time to time and don't just eat, you've already got eternal life in you. Yes. And that develops in conditions that transcend our present knowledge. And it was symbolized by the popular imagination by the resurrection of the flesh and eternal felicity. So, our Lord is basically a symbol of uniting the thoughts of God and man. Yes. Our Lady is a symbol. The church is a symbol of that big cosmic communion of everything with everything else. The resurrection is a symbol. You see what I mean by turning religion into symbolism? Yeah. Of course, the exposition I just gave you was according to Father Hebert's own taste. Most people would find this creed pretty ridiculous. But to Father Hebert, it was just, well, it said everything. And it gives you an idea of how to interpret creeds recited, A, by modernists, B, by modern liberals. Okay. Don't listen to the words. They're keeping the traditional words. But this is what's going through their heads when they say them. I believe the one Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that supremely superior individual. Who we have. All right. You get it? All right. I'm going to skip over the position of um, an indecipherable individual named Labertonnier. And I'm going to go to that ever important topic, biblical modernism. Okay. This is where I get to talk about Alfred Loisy. Yes. Christianity certainly depends on the New Testament where the roots of our dogmas and institutions lie. This foundation would be gravely troubled by several successive publications of Loisy. Now, Loisy was no brash young revolutionary. He was born in 1857. So he was over 40 years old at the turn of the century. This is a guy, this is, this is a middle-aged dyspeptic. And he wrote a series of articles. He was the son of a farmer, by the way. But he was show he showed a great love for studies. And in the seminary, he tended to side with the liberals on biblical questions. And he was much more fascinated with Hebrew verbs 
than he was with Christian philosophy. Had no use for it at all, really. But if it was Greek or Hebrew, oh, he, he was all for it. So in 1878, he uh, began a, a teaching career and came to the Institut Catholique in Paris in May of 1881. And um, two summers later, he composed an imaginary dialogue between a secular scholar, a young scholar, and the church, dear old Mother Church, who comes on stage in the person of a wise old Capuchin priest. So got the young scholar and the wise old priest. And the young scholar says, I can't believe that stuff you people teach. I just, you know, the resurrection and now I can't believe all that stuff. The wise old priest says, I must allow that my teaching can and ought to be modified in its form. Oh, gosh, immutable in its principles and its purpose, but it can and ought to be modified in its form to be perfected in its exposition in order that it may better respond to the needs of the generations which it must bring to God. Perhaps my doctors in this century have been inferior to their task and have not understood that it was permissible for them to abandon the old formulas, but that they ought almost to forget them in order to preserve for the world the very substance of the truth, which is entrusted to me, says the church. God will give me, I hope, men apt for this work, and you will no longer be able to accuse me of ignorance. Okay, I want you to notice some key words in there. Because they were destined to have a future. The form of dogmas is very changeable, says the wise old priest. The principles, whatever that is, and the purpose, yeah. But the form, the forms, very changeable. But under the changes of form, guess what we're going to do? We're going to keep the substance. Okay. Now I'm going to ask you a question. You've seen propositions. You've seen them all your life. Subject, predicate, sentence, proposition. Would you tell me where its substance is? What has to remain exactly the same in a sentence if it's to continue making the same statement or proposition? Why? I can change the subject, I can change the predicate, I can change the grammar, I can change the I can change the form, but I gotta keep the substance. Well, what the heck is the substance? That's the $64 question, isn't it? And of course, Loisy does not tell us, nor does the pious old Capuchin imagined by Marcel Hébert. They never tell us what the we're gonna keep that substance. Oh yeah, but they never tell us what it is. I'm sorry to say that Pope John the 23rd opened the Second Vatican Council 
with a well-known speech, no doubt written by some Jesuit, in which he remarked famously that we can change the form of the church's doctrines while always keeping the substance. Right, Holy Father? We're going to keep that substance all right. But until you tell us where the form ends and the substance begins, we are not resting comfortable. You know what I mean? Well, Loisy um, thought that this was his personal work above all. He would free the church from bad scholarship and improve her understanding of the Bible and uh, get rid of lots of outdated ideas. I could tell you about a ton of this stuff. You don't want to hear all this about, you know, the feeding of the 5,000 and what that was really like. (laughs) I'm going to tell you about I'm going to tell you what Wazi did with the key idea of miracle. Okay. Come on. If the, if the gospels are full of our Lord's miracles, right? The church says those are the main reasons to believe. Everybody can see a miracle for crying out loud. Miracles are big. Okay. Wazi said, Let me tell you what a miracle is. (laughs) Miracle is the course of the world and of life as contemplated by faith, which alone penetrates its enigma. The same course of the world and life observed Another way from the outside by reason is the order of nature, the domain of science and of philosophy. Do you get this? Faith and unbelieving science are two ways of looking at the same thing. There is one world process, the world of physical events and life, one process. Faith looks at it through the eyes of faith and sees a miracle. Science looks at it through reason and sees the realm of the predictable, the realm of science. This is one way to get rid of the conflict between religion and science. Religion is just another way of looking at the facts. A funny money way of looking at the facts. Not just because we have the eyes of faith, but no doubt because we have such good and pure souls. We just like to see things in the brightest colors. You all know the movie The Miracle on 34th Street? Yeah. Watch again the very end of that movie and see what they say about faith 
in Santa Claus. Uh -huh. It's all in the eyes of faith. Faith, basically subjective. Miracles are not events outside the order of nature. They're a funny way of looking at the events within the order of nature. And I'm reminded of a song, one of the dumbest popular songs of all times. That's a brash superlative. I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. Yes? How does it go on? It does go on, yes. It, it, it's all, it's in every flower. Oh, it's just how you look at it. And you get wonderful old modernist ladies who say, I meet God in my garden. Yes. The pink in my garden keeps the pink in my cheeks. That's where I find God. They're buying churches and monasteries and all. I find him in my garden because I look upon my garden with the eyes of faith. You're just an old, dull botanist. No doubt you look at all of this stuff in science. You look at roots and stems and gosh knows what. But I, with the eyes of faith, see the core of the enigma of the world and its beauty. The core of the world is beauty. It's love. It's the dearest freshness deep down things. With that allusion to one of my favorite poets, I give up for this evening. I'll be back next week to talk about particular condemned propositions in more detail. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Dr. Marshall. Wonderful, wonderful presentation. So Pope Francis yeah. and what's going on in the church today, especially regarding the, the questions of, of marriage and communion and things like that, uh, a lot of people are going, hey, a lot of what you're describing here, we seem to be getting in the modern pontificate and, and, uh, and in, in uh, a lot of what a lot of the writings that we're seeing come out of the church today. And I'll just double that up with also what seemed to come out of Vatican II, um, ex especially in its uh, document on the church in the modern world, yep. in the church trying to modernize itself or speak to the modern world and therefore uh, change forms but keep substance. Can you respond to that? Well, let me start with the uh, problem about uh, Pope Francis and communion for divorced Catholics or people living in bad marriages. Okay. The Pope says full-throatedly, and I believe him, he has no intent to mess in any way with the dogmas. The dogmas are what they are from the Council of Trent. Yes, marriage is indissoluble. Yes, yes, yes. Okay? But then he turns around and says, we still have a pastoral problem. What do we do to reach out to these people in love and persuade them to come back into the fold of the church and, you know, repair their situation and so on. Okay, in part, it's a legitimate question. Okay? I don't want to drive every divorced person out of the church. 
there are few enough of us as it is in the church. I don't want to drive divorced and remarried Catholics out of the church. I do want them to repent, however. And I want them to know the truth about the doctrine and about their own marriages. Yes, I do. And I don't see how sugarcoating anything helps that. So there's an aspect to the Pope's pastoral strategy, which I, I really don't understand unless, is an idea I had recently, unless what he and Cardinal Cosper are really saying is there are cases where because of psychological complications back at the time of the original marriage, we just don't know if it's a valid marriage or not. Okay, I can understand that. I can understand that. Look, 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 look. We got these uh, canon law courts trying to do their best, solve these marriage cases, uh, but sometimes we just have to throw up our hands. We just don't know. And when we don't know if the marriage, when we don't know that the marriage is invalid, we can leave it up to the conscience of the couple. That's perfectly traditional doctrine. But in order to get to that application of the traditional doctrine, you have to be able to say, we don't know if they were validly married or not. So you throw away all the traditional objective indicators of whether they were validly married or not, huh? That's dangerous. Doctor, um, what um, could you give us an insight into the influence of, of modernism in, among the Jesuits and some particular guys that may have been heavily influenced and had an influence on the church? Okay. Um, uh, I, I can't answer that question in a reasonable time, but I can give you a couple of pointers towards where you can find more of the answer. There was a very famous Jesuit, very famous during the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, French, but he died oddly enough in this country in the early 50s. His name was Le Père Théard de Chardin. And he wrote some influential books, The Phenomenon of Man, for example. And um, secretly held an extremely modernist view, okay? In his publicly acknowledged works published during his lifetime, he gives you some uh, grounds on which to think uh, that his orthodoxy is safe. Um, save the Bible, save Adam and Eve. But he didn't believe in any of that. And he didn't believe that mankind descended from a single tribe, much less a single couple. Uh, Teilhard was um, a polygynist. That means he believed that mankind had multiple origins. Okay. 
and that will lead you to delicious uh, expedience if you're a racist. We white people came up from this route. The blacks came up from another route and rather later. Yes. The phenomenon of man did not look so good to Teilhard in Africa. He thought that the African primitive natives needed to be bulldozed away. Wrote a letter to the UN to that effect. Unbelievable. But Teilhard was a Jesuit. He had been suckered, I mean helped, <coughs> and protected by certain higher-ups in the order. <coughs> and um, there were other Jesuits in the late 40s who were going in dangerous directions. They became the inventors or the chief inspirations of La Nouvelle Theologie. Okay. And again, time fails me to go into the details. But when you um, are looking for the influence of modernism in Jesuits or anybody else, I would advise that you look for the modernist gap. Okay? The modernist gap. What's that? It's a gap between what God says and what we can understand. Okay? There's the divine message, speech, transcendental self-communication, whatever the heck. That's way up here. And we're down here trapped in our own world of historically conditioned words and symbols, yes. Can we understand the God? No. Does he transcend human understanding? Yes. Okay? Now, please tell me, how do you get from that to the conviction that what, that what God says is incomprehensible? He's incomprehensible, of course. His infinite being and all kinds of other things. Does that make what he says incomprehensible? Not unless you introduce the modernist gap. It's a gap designed to keep you at arm's length from what he says. Okay, wherever you find that gap... You've got the makings of modernism. That's excellent, Doctor. And I think you know, it's so good. I think we should just stop there because it gives a lot of people a lot to think about. And I know we have more questions at 22 questions, but there, I, I think that's a great, great point to stop on to keep us thinking to the next uh, program. And I do hope you're going to get more uh, next time into the Nouvelle Theologie movement, Resourcement, and things like that that really find their way uh, in into Vatican II and into uh, modern biblical scholarship. I think it's fascinating. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155.
and may the glory of Christ's church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. <laughs>